I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Gillian McAllister. She's just published her fifth novel. It's a romantic psychological thriller uh, called How to Disappear, which looks inside the world of witness protection. Now, we talk about why she likes to get the first draft done pretty quickly and then revise and redraft quite a lot. Uh, Also, how her inner lawyer helps the planning. And you can hear about how she went about researching the uh, pretty much unresearchable witness protection scheme. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you would be worried if you could find out much about it. Gillian tried her best. She found out what she could. And then she was forced to get creative. You basically just try to fit in and you don't you don't have a dead family so that people might raise questions. You say your family live abroad or you're estranged. Um, you stay off social media so that people can't see that you don't have a network. And obviously, so that you're not putting selfies up of yourself in witness protection. Um, but other than that, I really know very little about it. And so I was forced because of the the nature of the topic to basically use common sense. So a lot of it is made up, um, which was really fun. Um, and it was fun to consider the sort of ins and outs of it and just make the decisions myself which I've never really done I normally research quite meticulously there's more on the way with Julian McAllister in this week's writer's routine yes welcome along it is writer's routine the show where we take a peek inside the world the lives and the days of some of the most successful writers around uh, my name is Dan Simpson thank you for listening last week uh, I ended with a fib if you stay till the end. Uh, I told you that we were having on Sally Gardner. We're not having on Sally Gardner just yet. I got my dates confused. She'll be here next week. Uh, so make sure you come back for that. We do have Gillian McAllister this time around, which is fantastic. She is a brilliant storyteller, uh, an amazing writer, and also really good at unpacking the way it's done. It's a real deep dive into storytelling. She she tells us why she's a mixture of a plotter and a pantser. Uh, Also how the idea for the book came about when she just settled on another idea, which she then had to change to U-turn. She had to plead with her publishers so she could do the new thing that had come along, uh, all because of something that she heard in the bar. We talk about layering characters and why you should be sparing with your purple prose. Now, the new book, the fifth one, it's How to Disappear. Uh, It's a love story, 
all about Lauren, whose daughter Zara sees a terrible crime and they have to disappear. Which means that Lauren must give up everything and everyone that she loves, including her husband. You can hear all about the book in just a sec. First, let's dive into it with what Gillian sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, I have some dead flowers on my kitchen table. Um, I have a dog at my feet and a cat on my lap. Um, I have a tube of empty Smarties and an old coffee. So it's not exactly Instagram friendly at the moment, but it is how I work. <laughs> Where, whereabouts in your house do you write? So I am, I have like a long sort of bench and kitchen table um, overlooking my garden. And that is where I, I did make myself a whole home office and then didn't work in it um, and stayed in the kitchen. <laughs> why, why did you not work in it? What's happening there? Well, I mean, it was a few things. It's quite a cold room. Um, and I have a, I mean, my dog is now one, but she still behaves like a puppy. And her behaviour is better if she's got the run of the kitchen rather than a small room. Um, but also, my boyfriend is now working from home because of lockdown. So he has the office. Um, <laughs> so it's a few things put together. How have you made uh, a place like your kitchen, where you do a lot of stuff anyway, mm. uh, where, where most people tend to congregate? How have you made that into a space where you can where you can be creative? Well, honestly, I'm... I used to do all of my writing on my commute. So I'm not, I don't really need to be in a zone. I'm not very fussy. Um, And in fact, I quite like bustle and background noise and chaos. Um, I find it absorbs some of my desire to sort of task switch constantly. It's like a bit of busyness kind of helps my brain. Um, So honestly, it's just a kitchen table um, where I don't even put the laptop away at the end of the day. There's no boundaries at all, really. But um, yeah, I, d- I find I don't really need a sort of atmosphere to be able to write. I can sort of write anywhere. So if you don't need an atmosphere, what do you need, though, to help you get into the zone? Uh, I need a plan. Um, so I need to know what I'm going to write. And I need a bit of pressure. <laughs> so like normally, if I haven't done anything by about this time, which is two o'clock, I will turn the internet off um, and I'll be quite productive then. Um, But generally, if I have a whole day, I'll just faff around for at least half of it. (laughs) If I were to walk into your kitchen, uh, would I would I see any clues as to what you are writing? Have you got have you got um, post-it notes, places, things stacked up on the shelves, uh, on the cupboard doors, maybe plot notes stashed in the dishwasher? (laughs) I do have an open notebook right next to me where I sometimes I will do a whole plan on Microsoft Excel that's what I use to plot other times I will just open the notebook and sketch out a whole book um so there's a notebook there and I do character sort of mind maps in it as well but I'd say that's the only clue I'm quite sort of electronic normally the show is writer's routine uh talk me through yours Jilly so it's the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down writing how does it look so I get up about 8.30 quite reluctantly. I'm a night owl um, and I walk my dog for about an hour, um, normally about nine till 10. Um, and then I come back, make a coffee and then 
my only real job when I'm writing, especially a first draft, is that I have to do a thousand words and then I'm allowed to have my lunch. Um, and I don't get to have my food until I've done it because I'm a terrible time waster. So it's the only way I keep myself on the straight and narrow. Um, and then, so I normally have lunch about two um, or later. Um, and then I have to do another thousand words before I'm allowed to stop for the day, um, which I normally stop about six or seven. And then I walk my dog again. Um, and then I eat dinner and go in the bath. It's pretty much that is my writing day. It's quite boring. A bath every day? A bath every day, definitely. Oh, t- fancy. How the other half live. I know. Um, that, I know. That's amazing. So 2,000 words a day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a full-time author, so I really don't like to spend more than about nine weeks on a first draft because um, I do multiple drafts. And, yeah, I used to do a 1,000 words a day when I had a day job so I think 2,000 is quite a reasonable amount for me but it does depend what kind of writer you are like I am a, a quick and dirty draft kind of person and then I revise and revise and revise um but I think if I was only ever doing one draft that I refined I would definitely write a lot less per day. How was the process of making the leap up in terms of number of words so if you were writing uh, on a train before making sure you're getting 1,000 words done a day then you get to the point where you're becoming a full-time writer you're writing 2,000 words a day how did you find suddenly having to to get down double your word count every day was it tough at all um not really um I mean I had so much more time to do it in like I used to be a lawyer so I was really writing at very unsociable times to get first drafts done. Um, so I just felt like I had the time and the space. Like I think I think if I know exactly what I'm going to write and I have the characters ready and the plot ready, 2,000 words is about three hours work for me. Um, so, and as I said, I'm not really taking care of a prose in the first draft. So it's basically just shoveling sand to make sandcastles, if, to use that writer's analogy. But um, yeah, so I'm not too difficult to be honest there are definitely days where it is like pulling teeth but that is mostly because of procrastination rather than writing um once I start it it tends to flow a lot easier on those days when it is as you say like pulling teeth uh, is there anything that you do that helps out a little bit something that is maybe quite individual and niche to you a a cup of tea at a certain point for instance a, a bit of music playing in the background that just that just helps unclog the block um I think it sometimes I think you have to do a bit of detective work with writer's block and work out if you're bored writing a scene sometimes that's fine and it's just the mood you're in but sometimes I think there's a lot of gut instinct in writing and I think sometimes it's worth asking yourself the question of are you sort of on the right path and although I do like to do a first draft that I just get down it's like I will stop if it feels like this is actually I'm all I'm going to delete it all <laughs> at the end of the draft I will stop and say okay like are we driving past our exit on the motorway and we're just going to have to come back in which case it's better to stop um yeah and other than that if it's not a problem with the manuscript and it's just a problem with me I uh put my phone in a drawer and I turn the internet off and if I want to check things I write them down so like you know, I really want to Google that. And you know, when you're procrastinating, the urge to Google is really high. So I'll write them down. And I'll be like, you can Google all these things when you've finished. Um, And of course, you never do. By the end of the day, it's just a tactic your brain uses to get you to stop 
uh, being productive. So yeah, lack of internet definitely helps me. Speaking of the end of the day, when you're in your bath, how good are you at, at switching off? How how up for completely not thinking about your characters and your plot until when you're sat back there again the next day trying to get your 2,000 words done? Well... I don't know. I sometimes feel like I sometimes tell people I don't feel like I ever work because I've written novels pretty much my entire life and, you know, for free for the vast majority of it. So for me, it feels like leisure time. But I suppose on the flip side, I could also say that I'm never off work because I am not able to stop thinking about my work in progress in the bath or on the dog walk and I often get the best ideas there um and so there is really no clear boundary for me between the two like I sometimes if I'm really struggling with the book I will try and say I'm gonna you know finish at seven or whatever and I'm not going to think about it anymore but um it sort of doesn't really work like that it's like trying not to think about your other half or your pet or whatever it just it, you end up thinking about it because it's a big part of your life so when you've had your nine nine weeks of dirty drafting how does a day look when you are revising when you're rethinking and reworking the words that you've already got down so what I do is I plan on Microsoft Excel as I said earlier and I I do a new plan next to it. So in the second column, so I basically storyboard in Excel for my first draft. And then I have a big think um, after I've done the first draft and I sort of got a feel for what the book kind of wants to be and ought to be. And then I write down in the second column as against the first, how I want it to change. So chapter one in the first draft versus chapter one in the second draft. And I sort of annotate And then I do two boxes a day. Um, It's very regimented. It's like inner lawyer in me. Um, So normally my books are about 80 chapters or scenes. Um, So I do two a day. Um, So it's 40 working days pretty much uh, of a second draft. And by the end of the second draft, I then kind of have a handle on what I want the book to be, I think. On the left would be chapter one, chapter two going down vertically, and along the top would be multiple narrators if there are any. Um, and so I would have cell, you know, A1 would be chapter one, and it would say uh, X person finds a dead body or whatever if you're talking crime thrillers. Um, and then I would go down chapter two, this person tells this person about the body. So it's quite scant because it leaves room for creativity. So I don't say where they're set. Um, all I say is the salient information and who's narrating it. Um, so I never start a book without a completed one of those, which would be about 80 boxes, as I said. Um, so I know like all of the plot beats, but I don't really know any of the sort of flair how up for changing those plot beats are you so when you're a few drafts down the line if suddenly say between draft three and four if you get if if you do get that far say if one of your characters suddenly decides to do something that is drastically different from what you've planned for them so far uh, how up for you are you to uh to divert down that road well I mean I'm sad to say that I'm an awful combination of a plotter and a pantser because all of my novels so far 
I have actually deleted that first draft and started again. So when I replot um, draft two against draft one, it is utterly different. Um, so very up for it. I um, I think a lot of writers don't want to have that moment where they're like, the first draft doesn't work and the ending is contrived or whatever. But um, I think it's absolutely necessary to have those rethinks, which is what I do all the time. So if you did a comparison of draft four which is about when I deliver to draft one um basically not a word makes it over very depressingly as I'm about to start a first draft and I'm in the phase of kidding myself that that won't happen this time <laughs> I get it this might sound uh, like quite quite a harsh question I don't mean it to it's just the way it will come out why why does it have to be like that for you and for other authors, if you've mentioned, why can't your first draft be almost the one that carries you through? Why are you not able to figure out the, the plot that you want and the way to tell it in those nine weeks right at the start when you are putting quite a lot of work into it? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's the that's a million dollar question. Um, I think it's I think it's like if you're making a source um some things have just got to marinate for a while. And I think it's easy for me. So in my um, first draft of the book, I've just delivered three siblings bury a body. And it was going to be someone they knew. And it all worked on paper. They accidentally killed a family friend and they decided they had to cover it up. But actually in the writing of it, they were burying their friend and it just didn't work because it was like these characters actually wouldn't do that and would any human be able to do that so it's actually in the intimacy of the writing it that I think you learn the lessons of like "Mm, this worked on paper but actually when I get a feel for how it actually plays out in front of me I find I get like a sort of gnawing feeling in my gut, which is like, this isn't working and I wouldn't do this. And I think you can definitely ask your readers to suspend disbelief for some things, but probably not in chapter one. Um, So now that person became a stranger in draft two, which felt a lot more seamless. But then actually in draft three, I had to change the crime um, because that still didn't work. So I think there is something that happens in the actual writing of it that you can't achieve in a synopsis um you have to be immersed i think unfortunately <laughs> now what w- at what point have you realized that this is the best way for you to tell stories these you know drafting and drafting and drafting and also planning it out so thoroughly you mentioned earlier that it's the lawyer in you that that that, that that's why you do it this way early on because this is your your fifth novel now, isn't it? Early on, your the debut, as in the debut one that you published. I know that you said you've written quite a lot before, but the debut one that you published, everything but the truth. And um, was it a very similar process to how you're writing now? Was it a bit looser? A bit? Uh, did you give yourself more freedom in your in your structure? No, not really. It's very similar, and I think I think in some ways I'm afraid to change it um, because. I worry if I spent eight months on a first draft and tried to be careful rather than sort of bash it out and then think it through and then bash another one out and then refine, I would get to a point where I had taken eight months rather than three and I would have eaten into my deadline and I would still have the same fundamental process, which is layering and layering. Um, And yeah, I've always planned because I can't, 
I just don't know how you would sit down and write if you didn't know what you were going to write. That seems completely alien to me. Um, so, yeah, I think it's hard when you're a writer delivering, for me, slightly more than one book a year um, to sort of change your process because there's so little wiggle room within your kind of time, really. Um, it'd be inter- it would be an interesting experiment, but I think I would find it quite terrifying. <laughs> Aside from the planning and the plotting quite thoroughly, what have you learned about the way that you tell stories? What really helps you do that throughout your your five novels? Um, I think I do recognise sooner when something isn't working. And I think it used to all feel like, you know, writing is hard and I'm not very good at it. And that's how every writer feels. Um, But I now can tell the difference between general insecurity and actual gut feeling that this is not working um I can tell that sooner and I think as well earlier in my career I was more concerned with what I wanted to write and later in my career I'm slightly more concerned with what people want to read um so as a author now if I know as a reader I would have a question at the end of chapter one I do try to answer that question sooner than I otherwise would have because that helps with pace. Um, And I think paying attention to those feelings you get as a reader, um, it does help you become a better writer. Um, And I read all of my reviews quite fastidiously. And I think there's so many lessons in them. And one of them was about my characters not always being very likeable. And the other was about pace. And I have tried to address those because it is a consensus if a hundred people say your books are slow paced then I think you've got to listen um so I have learned a little bit more and I'm pleased to say my latest one um it's got a much higher average and it's not had either of those criticisms so um I feel like I have kind of developed there how do you make a character more likable well, I actually literally Googled that because I find with my, it's a very professional answer, isn't it? I find with my um, characters, they have to, so in my book that's out called How to Disappear, and it's about people that go into witness protection, and essentially they breach the witness protection in order to contact people that they've been forced to leave behind, as I think everybody might um, in the 21st century when you you know, you can't just delete WhatsApp and people's numbers so easily. Um, but they had to, obviously, they, they have to go against a system that's been put in place to save their lives. So I was sort of torn between the plot, which is breach the witness protection and all the fun and games begin, the peril begins, um, and, you know, behave impeccably and be likeable, but there's no plot. And I think the answer is just in a a middle ground and also it's writing them with sympathy so if you want somebody to contact their husband who they've left behind you've got to make that relationship come to life and you've got to show their loneliness first and then you've got to have them push to a point where somebody says are you single and they have to say yes they are because they're in witness protection and that's the story they've been given but they go home and cry about it and I think the reader is therefore immediately kind of on board because they can see their pain and they sort of experience it with them but I think it is a lot of it is in a rounded character um and kind of understanding their actions rather than 
they're going to do this for my plot, if you see what I mean. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with more from Gillian in just a sec. Very quickly, uh, just popping by to say that if you're enjoying the show, if you're hearing some things, some tips, bits of advice that you think might change, might affect the way that you write, you can always support us over on our Patreon page. This is the 131th 131st episode of the 131th come on it's been a long day 131st episode of the podcast i think um if you've learned anything that has helped you if you think they're worth a a couple of quid a few dollars a month you can do that you can support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine it really helps the show you can get our thanks you can get little bits of merch and you can also get a way for your book to sponsor the show it doesn't need to be a lot i feel a little bit awkward talking about it i'm british If you do love what we do, if you want to see us carry on, us carry on bringing you chats with as many authors as we can, um, you can help us do that uh, by sending a dollar or so a month. doesn't have to be a lot at all, I promise. Anything is really appreciated. You can send over what you can uh, to us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Gillian McAllister talking about her brand new book, How to Disappear. Uh, In the rest of the episode, you can hear how to layer up characters in later drafts. Uh, Also, how much she thinks about the perfect turn of phrase and and the metaphor to use and why to save herself time. That comes a little bit later on. Uh, And we get into it, uh, talking about the very first idea for how to disappear. Where did it come from? And we head back to the bath, by the way. Well, it's actually quite an interesting story because I had plotted out a different novel um, and got sign off from my UK and American publishers on it. Um, And there was something about that novel that wasn't really working in the synopsis for me, but um, that's quite normal. So I was sort of plugging away on that and I listened to a podcast in the bath about witness protection and my mind immediately started spinning off just about the scope of it and how 
really there are not many thrillers that cover it and I wanted to cover it from a sort of familial perspective of what do you do if you have to leave part of your family behind and really the idea just didn't leave me alone and it felt so much meatier than the book I was plotting out um so I did a sort of mock up blurb and uh, approached my publishers and said I'd actually like to do this one which I've never done and I'm sort of reluctant to do that because I know it's you don't really want to mess people around but it just wouldn't leave me alone and I'm very glad I did um because I do think it's my best work what's the process between you having that idea in the bath and then you writing the mock-up blurb to send to your publishers how are you I know this is quite an open-ended ambiguous question so I'm sorry for that (laughs) it's kind of the point of the podcast like how are you getting from that characters and a plot um Well, for me, the line that did it on the podcast was that you can take your wife into witness protection, but you can't take your mistress. And uh, I just thought that was such an interesting conceit. And I haven't used that exactly. I've used a blended family. So the husband stayed behind because he's got a daughter from a previous relationship. And it was the kind of what if of you've got to go into witness protection, but you can't take everyone you know. So where do you actually draw those lines? So for me, the plot always springs up in kind of a what if. Um, And that gave me the kernel of what it's about. So it's about people that go into witness protection and they are not able to communicate with those left behind. So immediately then I had to think, well, why are they in witness protection? So that's where the sort of backstory comes from. And then the forward momentum of the novel, I actually said to my dad, um, who does help me with quite a lot of my plotting, um, what would you do if your wife went into witness protection um, and you weren't allowed to communicate with her anymore? And he is quite a sort of subversive person in general, I would say. And he said, I'd get a burner phone. Um, And that unlocked the book for me because then it's so clearly about not behaving in witness protection, but also the reason you're in witness protection is because somebody wants to find you. And if you're not behaving in witness protection, you're going to make that process quite easy for them to find you. So and that's where the thriller element comes in, the sort of peril. So that is just quite a long explanation, I think, of how an idea for me becomes a plot like you sort of what if around it and you sort of shape the decisions your characters might make into what will be a book let's talk about that shape then you're moving that shape now onto the spreadsheet you've got your your 80 scenes kind of bracketed it up and again sorry about the open-endedness of it but how do you figure out what's going in each of those I know you say you do leave it, it it quite Uh, There is room to manoeuvre. You won't say where they're going to be. How do you figure out how that part works? How are you thinning it out? uh, How are you thinning out this this idea into just a couple of lines that lets you know the direction that you're travelling? Yeah, I think think keeping what, what is the hook in mind is really important for especially writers who want commercial success. So the hook for how to disappear is literally that like how do you drop everything and leave and what are the consequences of that and I sort of I have that in mind like a thread running through so ultimately in the book every single scene does address that question 
And then when I come to plot it out, I I mean, it, it literally takes me about a month to plot a novel out. So it's not an easy, simple process. But I would, so I began that book with the the scene of the, um, so it's my protagonist's teenage daughter that gives evidence in a murder trial. And then that evidence falls apart, which is why they end up going into witness protection. So scene one is quite simple. And then you would know scene two is something happens that prompts them, their lives being in danger. Um, And then I would tend to probably, I would know a couple of big turning points in the novel. So I would fill those in. And then it's sort of a matter of navigating from one to another. Um, It's like almost like breadcrumbing between the two. How does the the, the plot points that you're doing on Excel, how do they translate to to what you're sitting down to write in a day. When you sit there, when, you, when you've walked your dog in the morning and you know you need to get a thousand words done before you can eat, uh, how do you know what you'll be writing that day? Yeah, so I literally, it would say, so if I was starting that book on chapter one, it would be Zara gives evidence her name is leaked um, and the court case falls apart. That would be what was in that box. And so... I would attempt to write that scene um, and that scene probably is more than 2000 words. So I would probably attempt to write half of it. Um, And so, and then I would be done when I could tick that scene off um, or or have written 2000 words. So yeah, it's quite, um, so obviously I would have to decide on where it took place and at what point the reader would come into that courtroom action um and how it would fall apart but um yeah generally it's quite broad brushstrokes really on the on the outline and and witness protection is is by its very nature quite a hard thing to find out much about how did you go about researching witness protection well with difficulty as you as you say um i did try and speak to the person protection service in the uk um and i have had some dialogue but they were very reluctant to give me any kind of steer on how like for example how you would get a new passport in a new name I still don't actually know the answer to that question um and at some point after I've I read a book on it and I watched um a panorama episode on it and I've read quite a lot of um newspaper articles about people sort of stuck in witness protection um and I've read some, I read a myth buster because I think that the reality of witness protection is slightly more mundane than you would think. They're not, they don't get bundled into cars in the middle of the night and have their hair dyed and glasses put on and all of that. It's um, it's basically the idea is that you get as far from the perpetrators as you can um, and you try and hide in plain sight. So you have the same initials and often the same first name so you wouldn't um slip up and you do have a fabricated work history um which that is still a bit of a question mark in my mind because I'm not sure how references work in witness protection um and you basically just try to fit in and you don't you don't have a dead family so that people might raise questions you say your family live abroad or you're estranged um 
you stay off social media so that people can't see that you don't have a network and obviously so that you're not putting selfies up of yourself in witness protection um but other than that I really know very little about it and so I was forced because of the the nature of the topic to basically use common sense so my protagonists are put into army housing because I think that the person protection service would use um housing owned by the state um first of all um but a lot of it is made up um which was really fun um and it was fun to consider the sort of ins and outs of it and just make the decisions myself which I've never really done I normally research quite meticulously um but I just wasn't able to with this so um there is quite a lot of artistic license going on in that one (laughs) I quite like to write uh with flair so I do take care over metaphors and stuff like that but um the prose in my first draft is pretty functional um if nice metaphors come that's fine um but I don't labor over it because it's like if you I don't know I think like polishing your prose is like painting a room before you finish building the walls I don't know if that metaphor works but like I might delete an entire scene because it doesn't belong in the second draft so if I've labored over that prose that is actually a waste of time so for me I really just I'm very concerned about the main points being hit and and feeling the story like as I say when the when my characters were burying their friend didn't work um and I sort of got that in the writing of it so I am sort of there in the in the immediate uh way with the characters but I'm not bothered about saying you know somebody breathed cigarette smoke out and it looked like icing sugar or whatever I'm not sort of worried about the metaphors so much until much later and and how do you go about with the metaphors with writing with flair as you say when you are in a a later draft will you then labor over getting maybe a description that no one has possibly put together before yeah I do try to and I think it's good to be quite sparing with that stuff because readers don't really want to read purple prose in a thriller but um it's generally that probably the fourth draft and final draft um where I do do that and I just do a few pages a day um so that I know that this scene takes place in a cafe and I know that these two people I know their main personality traits but actually how can I just make it better um and sometimes that's about character about thinking well you know this person just told this person everything he was thinking but actually would he um and sometimes it's about atmosphere so you know is it raining outside and is the cafe steamed up or it's stuff like that like sort of an immersive quality and sometimes it is just prose um so you can say I reached to take a sip of my coffee or you could say something slightly more interesting than that and that is definitely the stage I do last. Talking about character there, just flag this up for me. Um, how much do you know, uh, how do you get to know your characters before you've even started writing about them? Because as we've spoken about for the last half hour, you do plot quite extensively, even though the first draft often gets ditched. How, how are you getting to know these people before you've even typed one word? Yeah, I do try to do some mind maps of characters in before the first draft um so I use these um there's character traits the sources available on the kindle both positive and negative character traits and they're really useful especially when 
like me, um, I'm about to write my seventh published novel, but really my eighth or ninth overall finished work. Um, so I feel as though I've I've written a very outgoing, spontaneous character and I've written a very sort of moralistic character. And I do find character gets harder the longer I'm sort of in the game. And those thesauruses help me to see traits that I've never really thought of and they're perhaps not people I've met before. Um, but... How do they work, Julie? How, how does a character thesaurus work? So basically... It's a contents page of traits in alphabetical order. So it might say generous or gregarious and you click it and then you get you go to the page, much like a dictionary, really. And it has an example of that character trait in action and where it might have come from and the kind of things the character thinks and says who has that trait Um, And then it links it to other traits as well. So somebody who's gregarious is probably also extroverted um, or like very sociable. Um, And it can help you put together a multifaceted character, I find. But I also, I, you know, some plots require a character to be a certain way. So the people in my sixth novel that bury a body are they have to be certain types of people um, and they do it to help out their siblings. So they're loyal first and foremost. And I do think sometimes it's useful to get to the end of the first or second draft before you start to go deeper than that, um, because the plot can drive the character in some ways, like you're never going to get somebody very moralistic burying a body for somebody else. So sometimes I layer up the character's in draft two or three um once i know a bit more about the actions that they've got to be able to take you're writing psychological thriller how much thought are you giving to um the conventions and the tropes of thriller writing i mean i mean you referenced earlier on that you read your reviews because you need to know if you need to be pacier uh, if your characters need to be more likable psychological thriller is is, is a very specific genre. Uh, how much are you keeping to those forms? How much are you trying to push them and break away and change the model? Well, yeah, I mean, I sort of identify as somebody who writes quite emotional thrillers, like How to Disappear at its heart is a love story between a man and a woman who can't bear to be parted. And that love story drives the peril. Um And the peril is in there. So it is a thriller. But for me, I'm much more concerned with the character development and the relationship angles. So I wouldn't really identify as a kind of standard sort of thriller writer where, you know, it's sort of like a a, you're running from a villain and you've got to find an inner strength to turn the tables and save everyone like that definitely is not the kind of thing I write, although I do read them. Um, And I do find myself when plotting, I do think what is the reader expecting at this stage? And I sometimes try to do the opposite. Um, So one of my novels jumps forward four years in the middle of the book um, because I thought that a, a conventional thriller reader would expect me to go straight to the end of a court case which dominates the novel and I actually stop it halfway through and go forward and look at the after effects and I think that is all kind of writer instinct really like you do have to differentiate yourself in a very crowded market and I think subversion is sort of one of the ways that you can do that. 
that is it for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to Gillian McAllister for coming on the show. If you want to read How to Disappear, uh, I urge you to do so. It's a brilliant page turner. You can get a link so you can grab it over on um, the episode notes wherever you're listening. Uh, and it's at writersroutine.com as well. While you're there, you can get in touch with the show. Use the contact form. You can drop us uh, a tweet. We are at writerspod on there. And always uh, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. I can't promise that I'm as attentive to criticism as Gillian is, but I read it and it helps other people find us, which is pretty amazing at the very least. If you've got a spare minute, uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Now, next week, we are chatting to Sally Gardner about her new magical fantasy for adults. She is a Costa Children's Book Award winner. She's a Carnegie Award winner. Uh, It's called The Snow Song, and she'll be on to tell us all about it next week on Writer's Routine. I will see you then. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.